Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So let's look at the first thing uh, that will be in our list. And there is an intentional order to how we're going to go through. So the first of those is is chapter 2, a Christ-honoring sense of identity. That when we go through this progression of the five things, the thing that we want to lay the foundation with is a sense of who we are. And so for each one, I will offer a definition of what we're talking about. So biblical identity refers to the defining ideas, labels, relational roles which make our actions or emotions seem right and natural. Identity, when healthy, remains constant even when circumstances and peer groups change. Identity should remain stable when no one is looking, when everyone is looking, when you are with the love of your life or with an ardent enemy. Identity is one of the defining marks of human motivation. We act out of who we think we are. Again, that may sound kind of losty and esoteric there for a moment, but just instinctively, when somebody does something that we think is out of line, what is the sassy question we ask? Who do they think they are? And so it's very natural for us to move from identity to action. Identity is a primary way that we make choices and judgments, often before we are conscious or intentional about either. So again, trying to walk through this, I'll just, I'll take me, Brad. How how would I think through the defining ideas, labels, and relational roles that that make my decisions seem natural and obvious to me? Well, who am I? I'm a redeemed sinner. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, I am a counselor who serves as a pastor. I'm an amateur chef. Or at least I like to watch Food Network and experiment with what I see on television. I don't know if that makes me an amateur chef or not. I'm a sports fan. I'm a country boy. And the thing is, I am, I am all of those things at the same time. Those aren't each like an article of clothing in my closet and I can look in and see which one I want to wear today. I used to think of it that way. And honestly, it resulted in a lot more insecurity. I can remember a moment where it kind of click that those things all need to be at the same time. Um, we were living in another state at the time, but we were at the church where we were uh, members and serving, and uh, our youngest son was about two. Uh, we were waiting for something outside in the hallway, and so I was down on the ground, I was playing some kind of little dinosaur game, where as he would go around, I would growl and reach for him, and he would cackle and laugh. And, and there was a time when I wouldn't have done that, because at church... I'm a pastor. I do that kind of playful, silly papa stuff when I'm at home. But, but I, was, I was, for him, I was papa there or anywhere else. And I, I got down and it was a moment that was appropriate to just act out of that. And one of the things that I noticed as I did it, there was a teenager uh, that I'd uh, kind of informally been mentoring. He'd kind of come along and you know, looked at me as someone who 
He wanted to see kind of how a, a man interacts with his family and with his kids. Uh, and I, I watched him watch us with a smile in the sense of it's okay for a man to engage with his son uh, in a public setting like that. And it, there was something that I was discipling, I was pastoring in the sense that I could be all of who I was wherever I was. It, you know, another example, it would be very easy for me as a counselor that whenever my wife and I disagree on something to go, ah, how can we disagree? I mean, if I'm a counselor. What are people going to think if they knew we disagreed on stuff? Well, they would think we were normal. They would think it would be odd if, if two people went through life managing all of their resources and time together and they didn't disagree. Uh, but somehow uh, that a label of counselor could very easily lead somebody to think that that label of redeemed sinner who's in process learning to live with other people well is something that was off limits and you couldn't be. Yet, I think another part here that we need to bring into play, uh, because particularly within conservative Christian circles, uh, I think sometimes that identity facet of redeemed sinner can become too encompassing and we neglect other parts of who we are that are very theologically accurate. I would say as people, we are simultaneously sinner in need of redemption, sufferer in need of comfort, and saint bearing the image of God as a child of God. And if we're not yet uh, placing our faith in Christ, then we're at least an image bearer um, waiting to be redeemed. But we are sinner, sufferer, and saint. And so one of the things that I give you in Appendix B is an example of how to think through some of life's predominant negative emotions, guilt, shame, and regret, in light of what we're talking about, so that redeemed sinner doesn't become that encompassing identity piece. Uh, that yes, we are sinners in need of redemption and we sin and our hearts are prone to wonder and form all kinds of idolatries and we need to be freed from those. But we also suffer. We're in need of comfort. And when we've been abused, we need to know that, that it is the image of God that gives us dignity and a voice that we can speak. And then we are image bearers. We are saints. We are adopted and all of those need to play equal parts and in different kinds of struggles that we face. God may be applying to the gospel to our lives through any one of those. And I think we need to become more balanced in how we do that. And I think one of the reasons why self-esteem has risen to so much popularity within the church is because we haven't always done a great job of applying the gospel to suffering. And that's why Appendix C, I'll try to give you another uh, short summary there of... Um, Suffering, self-reliance, and self-esteem. Where one of the things that was, that was very well-intentioned, even if maybe not effective in self-esteem literature, is they found when people have gone through times of abuse and neglect, they lose a sense of voice and dignity. And self-esteem was one way of trying to return that to people. And I think that Christ and the gospel offers that in a way that we may not as a church have been real skilled in offering to people um, without some of the negative side effects that we were talking about, and we'll maybe talk about more regarding self-esteem. So that's what Appendix C does. But let's turn our attention now to pieces of identity. What are those things that would make up uh, a solid and 
holistic Christian identity. We're going to look at eight facets. That's not at all meant to be exhaustive. If you want to go to Appendix A, it gives you, I think it's more than a hundred things that it means to be in Christ, things that happened, things that transformed our identity, so that you can literally take the next three months and just take one of those uh, per day and do your devotions and have a sense of who you are in Christ by going through the passages in that, uh, in that appendix. So what we're going to look at is not exhaustive, but I do think it's representative of the things that you'll find in that appendix. Uh, the first is uh, we are a child of God. This is that family aspect of our identity. One of the things that I can remember um, that my father said to me when, when I was growing up, there was something I'd done, it was knuckleheaded, I don't remember what it was, there's plenty of knuckleheaded things to choose from, um, but when he was correcting me, at least on this occasion, he didn't resort to volume and threats, uh, he didn't resort to a spanking or some kind of corporal punishment. He didn't do some slippery slope argument where he said I was going to wind up homeless drug addict under a bridge. But what he said was, Hambrick men don't act that way. Again, there are plenty of things that Hambrick men do and have done that, uh, that is by no means leave it to believer kind of family. But it, there was something right in what he was saying that was drawing out this kind of peace that He was trying to tie my actions to my identity. One of the places where we see that in Scripture that I think we often neglect uh, is in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where the command is, do not take God's name in vain. And I think oftentimes we limit that to saying GD or casually using the name of Jesus or God. But I think there's more than that. Think about a wedding. At our wedding, my wife, Sally Gambrell, as she took her vows, took my name and became Sally Hambrick. And I think part of what's encompassed in not taking God's name in vain is not just using it as a curse, but to take His name lightly. To take it as if it was a trivial thing to be called a Christian to be chosen, to be set apart. And so when he says, do not take my name in vain, do not take it lightly that I have brought you into my family. And then there is that aspect of being in Christ, which is one of those phrases that shows up hundreds of times within the New Testament. And I think oftentimes we just don't know what it means. We, we pass along and we read it so many times that it just becomes one of those things that We assume we know, but we don't know. I think part of what it's referring to there is the culture. That cultural aspect of our identity as Christians. You know, culture is the the language and the customs, the ideals, the heritage that that cause us to feel at home, that, that make it feel natural to be somewhere. And I think part of what is being communicated through that phrase in the New Testament is that when we're around our fellow believers, that's where we're supposed to feel most culturally at home. Now let me offer a a picture of where I think we missed this. And if you come to any seminars, you know uh, I am a Narnia nut. Uh, And there will be plenty of Narnia illustrations in in our time together. Uh, But remember the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There is that moment 
uh, for Edmund, uh, the younger brother, the one who is picked on, the one who doesn't feel as good as his older brother, uh, the one who's kind of insecure and kind of, at the, by this point in the, uh, his growing up, angry and cynical. From the moment he steps into Narnia, he is, he is a king. He is one of the two sons of Adams and two daughters of Eve who have been prophesied that of old, when they sit on the thrones of Caravel and throne, that the power of the witch will be broken. From the moment he steps in to Narnia, he's a king. But he doesn't know it. And so he gets into Narnia. And the first person he meets is the white witch. As a form of temptation, she offers to make him a prince. I mean, think about that. He is already a king, but he doesn't know it. So when she offers him to become a prince, he is excited, he is flattered, and he accepts it. And that's such a picture of all of temptation. Is Satan is offering us what is already ours in Christ at great price. And because we don't know who we are, we buy what is already ours at significant price and damage to ourselves. But it wasn't just Edmund. Uh, Peter had his own conversation with Aslan. A little later in the movie, um, Aslan is sharing with Peter how he is, what the battle strategy is going to be when they go into war against the witch. And, and as Aslan is talking to Peter about leading the army, uh, Aslan can tell that Peter's not all there. So Aslan asked Peter, do you doubt the prophecy? And Peter says, that's just it. I don't. But I'm not who you think I am. And Aslan says, you're Peter Pevensey from London, England, whom I called. And that is so much of who we are. It's not necessarily that we doubt Scripture or we probably wouldn't be here. But it's just, God, I'm not who you say I am. And he says, you are the one that I made, that I gifted, and that I called, and that I set apart, and that I have work for you to do, and I want to place my affection on you as my son, as my daughter. And we doubt. So there's this sense in which that is our culture uh, in Christ. Another piece here, slaves of righteousness. Uh, and oftentimes we hear that word slave, and it, in America it has a, a different connotation than, than the word that is used here in the Greek and the heritage. Um, that, that oftentimes where people would wind up into slavery, is, it was actually their form of bankruptcy. You, you couldn't go bankrupt, and so you had to become a servant of those that you owed a debt to and work that off. Uh, and they, there was kind of a custom there that you were called a, a doulos if after six years of working for this person to pay off your debt, if, if you had grown to enjoy your master and wanted to continue to be their servant. There was a weird ceremony where they put your ear up against the doorpost and drove a spike through it. I don't get that part. But it was that moment where you're saying, I am no longer a slave by compulsion but I am a servant by choice because of my affection for my master. I think that's a beautiful picture of what happens at conversion for a Christian. Before conversion, 
The law was oppressive. It was a weight. It was something that we felt like was being held over our head that we could never measure up to. And then when we see the gospel and we embrace it, we recognize that the law is nothing more than the character of God in principle form. And we, when we call Him Lord, we say, we will follow this, not out of compulsion because you're the cosmic cop, but because you are beautiful and mesmerizing and everything we could ever want to be. And we will follow you out of love. And that's, that is what's captured in the passages here where He speaks of us being a, a slave, a doulos of righteousness. Another great modern American theologian, Bob Dylan, uh, he he captured this idea that serving is not something that some of us do and others don't. Uh, in his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, he says, you might be a rock and roll addict prancing on a stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you a doctor or they may call you a chief. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And so again, we, we all serve someone. Another facet of our identity is we are the temple of God. You know, in the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle, and that's where God's special presence dwelt. And then there was the temple. And in the New Testament, what we find is that God came to live inside of us as His people in the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's the image that I want you to see. In the Old Testament... There were all kinds of regulations about going into the temple. Uh, You had to wash your hands, and the priests had to wear certain clothes, and you had to make a sacrifice and splash with uh, blood and water and all of this kind of stuff, and there was lots of regulations. And again, sometimes we view the law in the New Testament that way, as if it was this set of regulations. If you've ever worked in an office setting, well, there is a corporate office that is out of town. Uh, God is almost like that corporate visitor that He comes in and we've got to put on the dog and pony show and get it all right because corporate doesn't really know what they're doing and we do this kind of stuff when they're here because we've got to you know, make them happy and appease them but we know how things need to work here you know, kind of on the ground and, and we begin to view God as that outsider who has certain expectations that we upkeep whenever He visits. But this piece of our identity as the temple of God would give us a very different view of that that these regulations are not for an outsider. They're for an insider. They are forms of hospitality in the same way that when we have an honored guest, somebody that we care about coming into our home, we do things in our home, we prepare a favorite meal, we do the kinds of things that they like because we want to be hospitable to them. Again, that's another picture of what it is for us to follow the law. It it is hospitality for the Holy Spirit within our lives. Uh, Other aspects of identity. Uh, There is being a part of the body of Christ. Uh, It may be bad grammar, but it's good theology to say, I am a we. Uh, By myself, as an individual, life just doesn't seem a 
enough. It always feels like it's following up short. And I think we can go back to maybe a a passage like Genesis 2 where God said it is not good for man to be alone. And oftentimes we just take that passage to talk about marriage. And it does talk about marriage and why God created marriage. But let's think about that a bit more broadly. We were people made in the image of God to display God's character to the world. God exists in Trinity, eternal relationship. And so as an individual, I cannot display God's full character living in relationship as an individual. And so it's not just that God was saying, you're lonely and you need a friend and I'll make a, a wife and you guys can get married and you can live in the same house. And He was saying, I made you to display my full character and you need to be in relationship in order to do that. Again, this is where Paul Tripp, he would say, in a fallen world, there's a powerful pressure to constrict your life to the shape and size of your life. There's a compelling tendency to forget who you are and what you were made for. And we were just made for more than ourself. Now, there's another aspect to our identity. Again, probably not an appealing one, but we are fools for Christ's sake. Uh, this is that humble aspect of our identity. And I think it's here uh, that we recognize in terms of looking at this. We think, we hear fool and we think humiliation. I think this is where God gives us humility without humiliating us. Uh, That as Christians, our identity doesn't have to be that we've got it all together. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who already have it. I mean, think about it for a moment. The church is the only organization that I am aware of whose only requirement for membership is to admit that you don't have what it takes. In order to be a member of the church, all what I have to do is to say that I am a fallen sinner who is in making a mess of my life and is in need of a Savior. Which really strikes me odd when one of the biggest beefs that the world has with us is that we think we're better than everybody else and we've got it together. Now again, I'm not saying the church is innocent of putting that out there, but I'm simply saying at our very core, our beginning of membership is to say, no, we don't. And that God would use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And that He would use the foolish things of the world to draw the wise. And that's what He has always been about. And it gives us a rest in our sense of identity. Now we're also ambassadors for Christ's sake. And so it's not just that we're worried about our Christian subculture and what it means to be in Christ and be a part of the body of Christ. That we have this relational component of getting to know people for the purpose of influence. If we send an ambassador to another country, the United States, if we send an ambassador to another country and all they did was live in the embassy and they never not get to know the people in the country where they were, I hope we would fire them. We want them getting to know the culture and what's going on in that country so that they can share, um, in this case, what is in our best interest and leverage that in those countries. But with God, it is so that we can share that same message we were talking about that in many ways makes us fools in the eyes of the world. 
that we are fallen sinners who were made with dignity in the image of God, but rebelled. And we needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ came, living the life that we should have lived, but because of sin, we're incapable of living, and dying the death that our sin deserved, so that He could give us our, His righteousness as a free gift, make us right with God, and allow us to enjoy the relationship that we were always intended to have with God. And that is the message of which we're an ambassador. And yes, it sometimes makes us look foolish to the world around us. One final piece of our identity. Uh, salt and light. This is the productive component. That whenever we're in our workplace or anywhere else, our goal is wherever there is darkness to br- bring light. Wherever there is to b- decay to bring preservation, which is what they use salt for more than flavoring in Jesus' day. And that is to be part of our identity in what we do. So let me pause here and just ask a question. If we were just to take these aspects of our identity seriously, how many of our choices and our temptations and our stressors would be made or eliminated for us. I would contend a lot. So many of my choices, when I just realize that I am a husband and a father, those choices are made for me. I don't have to wonder what I'm going to do when I go home from work. I'm going to go home. I'm going to engage my wife and my kids. I'm going to ask them questions and show interest and try to... Um, invest in them and disciple them and enjoy them. Uh, it, when I know who I am and recognize that that is part of the identity to which God has called me when I made the choice to marry and have children, so many of my choices are made for me. And too often we try to make so many of our choices and think through so many of our stressors and temptations without just beginning with the foundation of who we are. Now, one final part that I think we need to clarify as we're talking about identity and who we are in Christ. There is a real sense in which we are a new creation. But we are a new creation with a history. As contradictory as that may sound. I would say it this way. When we are saved, we actually become a new person. That's what we learn in Ephesians 4. We are literally a new creation. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5. Strangely, this new person has a history. They have habits, a pattern of thinking, values, and commitments. With that baggage, however, comes a new name. And this is why adoption is such an accurate depiction of salvation. I think a really good case study in this that we see in Scripture is Moses' experience at the burning bush. You know, to this point in Moses' life, he's had a lot of high highs and low lows. From the moment he was born, by the edict of Pharaoh, he should have been killed. But in an act of defiance, his mom and dad preserve him. Uh, they recognize everybody's going to be killed unless they uh, do something, so they put him in a basket. He gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter uh, through uh, a very providential arrangement. He's raised in the household of Pharaoh, and he excels in the schools of Egypt. So he's doing well. Then in a moment of rage, he kills a man 
and he goes on a run for his life. And he spends the next 40 years herding sheep. Blue-collar work. He gets married. He has a wife and kids. And then one day, as he's walking with the sheep from one watering hole to another, he sees this bush that's burning. He goes up to it because there's not that much interesting stuff that happens. And so, hey, I'll check this out. And as he's there, God speaks to him. and says, I want you to go. I have heard the cries of my people, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. In Moses' first question to God, if you look at it there in verse 11, is everything we've been talking about. Who am I? Exodus 3.11, Moses turns to God and says, Who am I? Now this is one of those moments where I am, as really is often the case, I am so glad that I am not God. Because I think I could have very sarcastically put Moses in his place and would have been tempted to do so. Uh, Moses, of all of these slaves that have been slaves for like 400 years, do you know any of these Hebrew slaves that grew up in Pharaoh's house, that knows the language, that when they go knock on the door, the guy standing next to it is going to be somebody they went to school with, or they're going to be able to share stories about how they play football at recess. Do you know anybody in all of the Hebrew people who have got those kind of connections? I'm taking applications. Moses, I don't know. These Hebrew slaves who have been slaves for 400 years, who have done nothing but make bricks for 400 years, do you know any of them that are skilled in being a shepherd that have taken large quantity of animals and helped them guide through all of that? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a big desert between Egypt and the Promised Land, and I kind of need somebody with that skill set. So if you know anybody else, again, I'm taking applications. God didn't scold him. Even though I think his question should have been obvious. God's answer in verse 12 was, I will be with you. You are my child. I will surround you. You are a part of my people and I am drawing my people out. I am simply asking you to be my ambassador to Pharaoh, no matter how, um, no matter how foolish it may seem. I want you to be light in this dark place. I want you to preserve the people that I am calling for myself as salt and lead them into the promised land. I will be with you. This is who you are in me. And he reminds them in that simple phrase of everything that we've been talking about. 